0: An enormous fence separates the edges of patients' Camp from the island's various military installations. It stands more than eight metres tall in places and is made of prefabricated steel and concrete sections, partly to facilitate transit and installation, but also so that it can more easily follow the contours of the land. Floodlights and watchtowers are spaced along this border, and in places there are anti-vehicle ditches on the patients' Camp side there are regular patrols on both sides of the fence and defensive measures including barbed wire and movement detectors where space and terrain allow a three-fence system sees barbed wire coils forming outer fences on either side of a lower profile central fence with movement sensing equipment and patrol access on both sides every mile or so there's a gate or a checkpoint and here The alleys and paths of patients' Camp widen, and the nature of its buildings appear to change. They seem to grow more substantial and to serve other purposes than the simple provision of shelter. It's as if this increased density of shops and bars and fast-food joints has been produced by some effect of the more concentrated traffic and the confined space. Just as the sudden faster flow and the pressure differential caused by the lifting of a sluice creates an eddying turbulence that traps whatever chaff and debris, leaf litter and styrofoam might be carried in the water. There are souvenir shops piled with T-shirts and faded postcards bearing seemingly random images of countless cities, cathedrals, beaches, castles—a babel of greetings— Forgotten celebrities of all nationalities and ages blindly stare from the racks, as if waiting for some statistically ever more improbable moment of recognition, when they'll be snatched up by a passing member of whichever diaspora, and revived, reanimated. More rudimentary stalls sell salvaged goods and bric-a-brac of dubious function and origin, servicing unlikely markets and unimaginable demand. There are vacant lots piled high with electrical and other components—motors, cabling, circuit boards. There are relics—here, a box of broken calculators, and there, trailing wires and hydraulics, partly covered by tarpaulins, bigger than their shelter and recognizable from illustrations in books, the best part of the flight deck of an airliner. A chandelier the size of a bell-tent buckles under its own weight. Some people have set up improvised bookstalls, while others sell street food, varieties of fritter and flatbread. These few gates and checkpoints allow essential communication and traffic between the two worlds, the controlled movement of aid lorries, heavy plant and personnel, the refugees who are allowed to work on the base, the soldiers and security men on a rare night's leave. Through these checkpoints and a system of illegal tunnels flows a constant exchange of contraband, construction materials and other commodities, especially money, which washes in and out of patients' camp, like the tide. Moving quickly, or at night, when the temporary nature of the buildings is less evident, This more commercial district might look like just another town, instead of what it is—an illusion, created from stolen concrete and corrugated iron, summoned from paint and glass and hacked electric light by the presence and movement of such great numbers of people. Some of the larger buildings are built so close to the wall that they seem practically a part of it. Nightclubs such as the Captain's Table are so well lit that the floodlights on the fence behind seemed dimmed. But brightly lit or not, travellers would need to keep their wits about them in a place like this. It is said that late at night and after too much hooch or one too many games of cards, plenty of people have taken a wrong turn backstage in one of Smiler's clubs and found themselves empty-pocketed or trouserless, sick and sore and paperless on the wrong side of the fence or the law lost and with no means of return or worse in the daytime this club looks like what it is which is a machine for emptying the pockets of those who cross its threshold it's a low-ceilinged hangar, a barn with a bar running perhaps three quarters of the length of one wall and a low circular stage at the back of the room lit by a couple of rudimentary overhead lights now dark A tatty curtain of plasticized foil strips hangs against the wall at the back of the stage, topped by wreaths of fairy lights, and behind this curtain is a door that leads to the facilities, the single changing room come lavatory and beyond this a backstage labyrinth of offices and corridors and accommodations of various kinds. To the right of the stage, from the audience's perspective, are a scattering of tables and chairs, and it's here that Captain Smiler holds court. He is a big man in more ways than one, and powerful enough to hide in plain sight, protected by a network of bribes and unspoken instructions, a web of nods and glances, by the opening of guarded doors and the closing of them. Here Smiler might appear simply to be sitting at his usual table by the side of the low circular stage at the back of the bar, and talking about this or that with a succession of visitors and supplicants, who are each nodded in for their brief, allotted Audience He might appear to be ordering or invoicing, to be filling permits and custom declarations, writing waybills or pay bills and shipping documents. But from where he sits, Smiler can see every inch not only of his bar but of his whole operation. No movement or fluctuation escapes his attention or control, and a decision might be communicated by little more than an imperceptible lift of the chin, or a cherry stone being spat onto the floor, followed by an underling shown out through one or other door. To the innocent observer this might all appear to be legit—to be the simple stuff of business and completely above-board—but there are not too many innocent observers invited to the captain's table when Smiler is holding court. Occasionally, though, some will blunder in, as ripe as a peach. Two fresh-faced soldiers, wearing more and cleaner uniform than most, have rolled their money and stuffed it inside their trainers, keeping some minimal amount in a shirt pocket. Plump and green, to have got this far, they will have been waved through a number of invisible checkpoints that they didn't even know existed, to play a game that they have already lost. They cannot see it, but they are caught as surely as lobsters in a wicker pot. Even if they wanted to, there would be no way for them to back up and return the way they came. It was still light outside, a second ago, but not here. They look around blindly, until, seeing the figure of the captain sitting at his usual table by the side of the stage, one of them steps forward and mimes the dealing of a deck of cards to several players.' Captain Smiler didn't get his name for nothing. Beaming broadly, he lifts his chin in the direction of a man who has been sitting in the shadows at the other side of the stage all this time and who now stands up and bows slightly with a decorousness that is almost sarcastic, saying, "'This way, gentlemen.' He opens a door and light fans briefly onto the stage as he shows them through. In the daytime, most visitors to the captain's table are Smiler's, employees, agents, or assigns, and Browning is just such a one. As he is nodded through from the street, Browning can't help but notice that Smiler seems genuinely pleased to see him, standing up and embracing him as warmly as it is possible to do at arm's length. The big man smells of expensive soap and cologne, while Browning still smells like rancid turtle grease that's been burned on the fire, even though he has spruced up since they landed. "'Come,' says Smiler, beaming, "'Bosun Browning, I was expecting you. How's the fruit business treating you, eh? Come.' They have a lot of catching up to do. Browning has been away for weeks. He hands Smiler a roll of cash, which the captain quickly counts and then tucks into his breast pocket. It is still light outside, but it is dark in the bar, as Head bowed, Browning nods and frowns and listens intently to the very big man standing next to him every now and then a thought flickers across browning's face and he opens his mouth as if to speak but there is no break in the sing-song of self-regard and status affirmation that flows from the mouth of his host and so the flicker is gone and browning finds that he is still nodding and frowning and knowing that of course he has no say in just how long he might be standing here like this The captain is wearing an enormous patterned open-necked shirt and a pair of canvas or denim trousers that seem to be uniformly encrusted with a whole lot of flash and unnecessary decoration of fraying and stitching and piping. Tiny bits of what could be mirrored glass are sewn into the fabric of his shirt, and they catch the light whenever Captain Smiler moves or when he picks up the bottle and pours himself a drink. As he nods and frowns and listens and watches the clear spirit splashing into the glass, Browning is suddenly self-consciously aware of just how filthy and poorly dressed he must appear to his boss. "'Why the long face, bosun Browning? You should cheer up a bit,' Smiler says, sloppily filling another glass and sliding it towards him. "'Cheers!' "'See, if I was you, I'd be smiling.' I wouldn't be able to believe my luck, because what else was it, eh? You must be one hell of a lucky man, because what else could have washed you up in here to work for me? It must have been your lucky day when you walked in here. So I don't know why you're frowning, when, look around, luck has thrown you into a situation where taking care of my interests and taking care of your own amount to the same thing. The more you do for me, the better it is for you. That's what I call lucky browning. What else would it be? I know they say everybody is out for themselves these days, but in your case, being lucky cuts both ways. So by looking after me, you are also looking after you. And that way, we can both have a nice, easy life. Browning knows that whatever it looks like, this is not really a conversation he is having, but a kind of ritualised performance in which he must play both underling and pupil to Captain Smiler's big boss and teacher. He knows that he is obliged not to contradict Smiler, so he affects the expected air of one who is undeserving of such beneficence. But while he is nodding and frowning and listening intently, He is also remembering, and totting up, and ticking off, and making a mental note of the various business transactions that are being accounted for and planned. And it's this, his quick brain, and his ability to get things done that have landed him here, not luck at all, or not only.